0: I go to quite a few Dodger games each year and park in the top parking lot and love the view of downtown from there, and so I would like to think that I was a fairly good uh, uh, assessor of the skyline. I'd like to think I had a pretty good grip on the skyline of downtown Los Angeles, but recently I, I drove through the city and I was in one of the hillier parts and I was looking down at downtown Los Angeles and I noticed a skyscraper. That I hadn't noticed before. It was like all, it was going up really fast, and 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 then I and I realized that this thing had been in the works for years. This is actually a picture of the new Grand Wilshire complex two years ago when they did when they broke the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest concrete pour in history, the longest continuous concrete pour in history. It took two hundred trucks and two thousand truckloads to fill necessarily the gaping hole in the ground. And then they had to get all of the underground components in in place, including earthquake shock systems. To build a skyscraper in Los Angeles is really a a long and arduous process, but the the lengthiest part of the process is the building of the foundation. And and you understand that. Uh, My buddy Chris, who's here today, works on some high floor in one of those buildings down there I'm glad to know that they took a long time here in earthquake land to build that thing safely and soundly. I've thought a lot about foundations of late uh, because of my involvement in a variety of different things at the genesis of their origins. What I mean by that is like between Prism Church and then the college where I teach and now serve as an athletic director up the hill at Providence Christian College, I, I'm, these are organizations that are in their infancy Prism is five years old. Uh, Providence is 10 years old. Um, I don't know why I'm always drawn to things that start. But the whole process of being a part of organizations that are at their infancy is you're you're building a foundation. And it's a lot like building a house or a lot like building a skyscraper. Two weeks ago in our series here on membership, which is a nine-week series with some stops in between here and there, but it'll go over three months. Uh, we're in the process of trying to explain what it is that we do. And at this stage of our church's life, where we have just installed elders, and now we can have members and then a diaconal teams that will come from that membership. This process is laying a foundation bit by bit. And in this process, we discussed first uh, what we meant by being the body of believers, which is the title of our series, We Are the Body of Christ. And then today, what we want to do is cover the foundational belief, and this is going to sound like a very ambitious project for what will be a 30-minute sermon. Uh, We're going to cover the defining belief of all Christ followers. Now, that seems ambitious because many of us come from different backgrounds, um, and we would wonder, how in the world are we going to be able to distill down to 30 minutes that which is central to all of us. But there is a common thread that essential Christians, that, uh, that there's a common thread that is essentially Christian. Each genuinely authentic Christian church s- shares the same basic foundations of faith. There might be many different looking churches. There are going to be different sizes, different colors, different ages. But foundationally, if it's a Christian church, it's going to share some common things. Today we want to define clearly what it means at PRISM for a person to be a Christian, because that is a requirement to be a member at our church. I'm finding it more important in our age to be as clear as I can about what I mean by that, because there is a tendency for people to kind of co-opt terms, redefine them, and then say whatever they want to say. And so we would like to think that we are part of the tradition of Orthodox Christian theology, and we have some documents that are a part of our statement of faith identification. One of them, which I'll uh, revisit later in our discussion today, is the Luzon Covenant, which is an international covenant of churches that said, we, we agree in the modern era on what is definitively, what definitively makes someone a Christian and in a variety of different areas. And so when we go through the membership process, you'll get a statement of these that we adhere to. And in particular, we talk in this statement with some clarity about the nature of the gospel. Before we begin, though, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself, because as a new church, there are lots of new faces, and the stories I told three years ago, most of you had, didn't hear. And to not bore those of you who've been around for a while, I'll try to refresh it a bit. But I was raised in a Roman Catholic home, And that meant going to church every Sunday and going to what was called CCD, which is Catholic version for Sunday school, but they do it in the middle of the week, which is worse. Um, I didn't like going to church at all, but you know what? I know friends who were Baptists didn't like going to church either, so this isn't unique to the Roman Catholic experience. What's also not unique is that people would go to a church, and regardless of the message they might have heard, even if they went to a church where I would have said, pastorally, I'd give you the good housekeeping seal of approval. If you said, I'm moving to this city, do you think this is a good church? And I said, I think that's a great church. You know, theologically and communally, it looks like a great place to be. Still, even in those great churches, many, many people will come through that process, and what they hear is the essential message of the Christian faith is, Be good so that God will like you one day when you die. It doesn't seem to matter how often they've been to vacation Bible school or youth camp. It seems like the default in our system is to say we've got to be good or God's going to judge us. So when I used to get in trouble as a kid or I would have something disastrous happen in my life that made me sad, my first impulse was to say I've got to start being good again. Now I saw this play out for many kids in Christian evangelical churches when I was a youth pastor they would go to youth camp and they would make that that strong recommitment to Jesus while away with their friends at paradise you know and it seemed like a good thing and at the time as a youth minister I loved it so I'm not going to you know besmirch that but They would come back and like within three weeks, they're like, uh, you know, the fire is gone. What happened to my fire for Jesus? And, And they just got caught in this cycle of trying real hard, failing, and then growing in despair. And this, friends, is not the foundation of healthy Christianity. Christianity that is rooted in a I feel bad and I'm trying real hard to get God to like me by trying to obey all the rules just right and until I do obey all the rules just right God isn't gonna like me very much and I can never be at peace with him is the kind of religious experience that produces one of two things it's either gonna produce a self-righteousness for those who manage to check the boxes pretty well and then it's gonna also create despair for people like me. who realize that they can keep the boxes for about two weeks and then they start to feel like I'm not doing the job very well here and that's why people in many ways stop going to church because they think they got a good beat on what it means to be a Christian but they're really miserable because they don't. They don't really understand the gospel. They may have been told it for any number of reasons. They may have not been able to hear it but a gospel message will neither produce self-righteousness or despair and today we want to walk through that it happens that Jesus the environment in which he taught was very similar to that and you see this played out in the gospels you had a a group of people that were fairly religious um, and they thought they had a pretty good beat on things and they were super self-righteous and looked down on others who didn't play the game as well as they did and then you had a group of people who've simply abandoned the notion of following God in the first place, and they were in despair. They thought, you know what, He's never gonna, we're never going to be able to live up to the standards, so why bother? And this is really where many, many people in our era, in our, in our culture, are. And so as we begin, I, I really want us to see, as a church, the things we share. We will share some things in common as a church family. And today, in particular, there are three from our text in Ephesians 2. And the first is this, that we share a broken and sinful nature. I'll read again through the text, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. He's speaking to Christians, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I love how Paul lumps every human being into the same category. What this should do, particularly for people who call themselves Christians, is remind us that we aren't righteous because of our own good works or our own good strength. There's never a place for self-righteousness in the life of any believer. The starting point for any healthy relationship is a mutual admission that you're broken and sinful, that you're both broken and sinful. And if we're going to have a church family, we're going to have to have people who are okay with the idea that they might be part of the problem. And that only happens as you come into contact with the gospel and you are freed from any fear of being wrong. Your eternal destiny, if that is in jeopardy, you think, by being pointed out as being a failure in some way, you're going to react defensively. There's no question about it. When I'm feeling insecure and people tell me, you know what, you're part of the problem, I tend to react very angrily, sometimes viscerally. As I'm immersed in the gospel, and when the realities of the gospel have taken hold of my heart, I'm seeing myself as secure before God and loved by God and then someone comes up to me and says, you know, your behavior here bothers me. My response should be, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm worse than you're even describing me. So let's go ahead and talk about that. How can I apologize to you? It is common to all, according to this passage, we all have a nature that is broken. Even if you have self-control in one area which some of the Pharisees of Jesus' day would have certainly claimed that they did, you have to recognize that there's probably an area in which your life that others have more self-control than you. And if that isn't the case, let's say you're Superman, Superwoman. You're the most mature Christian in the building, except for that pride that you have. Um, let's assume for a second that you've got a fairly good grip on the, to, the do's and the don'ts. You'd even have to in your humble state, recognize that that's probably because you have been blessed in ways that others haven't been. You've been raised in a home where you were loved and nurtured well. Or perhaps you were brought into an environment, not by your own choosing, where others influenced you and really brought you along. I have people I know and relatives I know that are Marines. And Marines love to pride themselves on being well, they are the few and the proud. They like being known as the disciplined ones. And, you know, and they, they rise early. They work hard. They stay fit. They're always alert. But I've known some of these people that were not Marines before and went through Marine, the Marine Corps. And while they take great pride in who they've become, they didn't do that alone. It was the mechanism of the Marine Corps that brought about those things. Otherwise, they wouldn't be getting up at 5. I knew my nephew was sleeping until 10. You know what I mean? Went to the Marines, and now he's up at the crack of dawn. Something changed in him, but it was something that was brought about even by the influences external to him. I would say that you and I have to avoid our self-righteousness because God has been particularly gracious even in enabling us when we have areas of strength. This humility helps us to see that our inclinations are gifts of grace distributed by his spirit through some means of common grace that we all share. What we do certainly share is a base nature. If you listen to Scripture here, there are two things that are described. One is a nature that is prone to wander. That's the hymn we sing. A, A nature that is easily led away and easily drawn into things that would not be good for us, but make us, in a moment feel as if if I have this, then i 'll be satisfied. But in real terms, the last verse of this verse three says that we were by nature children of wrath. So the scriptures describe humanity, all of humanity, as in this state of being under god 's wrath. now don 't get panicked yet because we 're going to get to the good news of the gospel in just a moment, but our natural state is that we share this equivalence of brokenness. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, the verse says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is true. Whether we want to believe it or not, whether ever we think we are better than somebody or not, we all are far short. I used to say things like this. (laughs) You know, if, if you say you can jump, long jump, 20 feet, and I can only long jump two feet, you can certainly feel good by comparison to me. But the goal is not to jump two or 20 feet. The goal would be to jump two miles. So in that sense, we're both way short of two miles. Comparatively, you might feel better than me, but if you start looking at the big picture stuff, God's holiness is so much larger than we can comprehend. We have to carry this humility with us. Isaiah fifty three six, the prophet Isaiah said, in referencing the soon coming Messiah, "All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." Uh, iniquity of us all. And the key verse in the key section of this particular verse for me is his own way. This is what is our nature. Our nature is basically selfish, and you know even Darwinian evolution reinforces this concept. Presuming you believe wholeheartedly in in the notion of the survival of the fittest, that whole paradigm for life and seeing life is that I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to survive at any cost, even if it means expending you. See, this is the nature of human nature. We are by nature selfish. We do not consider sacrificing ourselves for someone else's flourishing naturally. This is what the scriptures would say we share, a broken and sinful nature. And this admission is the sticking point for the super-religious, the super-religious who are re- not religious but spiritual, for people today as it was in the first century. Super-religious people, super-spiritual people are super-proud. Super-intelligent people are also super-proud. The one condition that exists for anyone to receive the grace of God is you must be willing to recognize your own need for forgiveness. If you're going to enjoy the presence of God both now and for eternity, you have to admit you need forgiveness. We've got a big snowstorm in the Washington area right now, and uh, I grew up in the D.C. area, and there was a, a, a really fun time when the snow first comes down where everything's beautiful. And then weeks later, when the slush hits and the dirt hits and it just starts to rain, everything gets dirty and grubby. So it's so beautiful when it first falls and you take pictures, but then your car gets just, like, ruined. And I remember once being at a car wash in my dumpy Chevy Nova, and there was a line of cars, and one of them was a Rolls-Royce. And I thought to myself, you know, it really doesn't matter whether you drive a $100,000 car or whether you drive the used one you bought because that's all you could afford – after a storm they all need a wash you know it really doesn't matter and this is what the scriptures are telling us you might be the rolls royce of people you know good looking tall wealthy you know talented (laughs) you know you still need cleansing even compared to us chevy novas we all look grubby you know And and I would encourage you that it isn't a bad thing to come to the place where you say, God has made me. He's made me with certain gifts and talents. I'm grateful for that. Even that is a humble admission to say that God made me. But if you're going to enjoy God's presence, you're going to have to get used to the idea that you need cleansing. And so while we share a broken and sinful nature, the second thing we share as a church body is a merciful and gracious God. I want to unpack this for a bit by reading the passage again. And I'm going to focus a little bit on this first, these first two words, but God. Because in light of being told that we are objects of wrath, Paul very quickly wants us to understand that God had no intention of leaving his children in that place. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. See, the parenthetical statement is, but God made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And I love how this parenthetical, by grace you have been saved, is jammed right in there. It's to reinforce that he has done this work in us. And in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, but God, so no matter how stark it may look, and as in our culture, the idea of God's wrath causes some people to just pucker up, I mean, it's just like, Ugh, I am not going to be anywhere near a God who is, has any right or thinks that there is any reason for wrath. And, and yet at the same time, it doesn't take much digging through history to say there are moments where we wish God's wrath would have been on display. If you look at some of the, the worst of the worst dictators and cruel uh, abusers of humanity, there are many who would say they don't want anything to do with a God of wrath who would be grateful if that same God had come in and, and interrupted the Holocaust or stopped someone like Mussolini from torturing hundreds of thousands of Italians. You know, we we would then go, wow, he he really inserted himself into history in a way that I'm thankful for. See, we never want to think about wrath as it points to us. Paul wants us, by the use of this word, but God wants us to see, you don't have to be afraid of that any longer. If you're willing to admit that you need forgiveness, you don't have to, like, freak out at the idea that God would rightly judge people. He's pure, we're not. Does your heart not tell you that that's true? Then why be afraid? See, this further humbles the believer that we weren't naturally seeking God. And we'll get to more of this next week, actually, as we dig a little deeper into the theology of our movement. We love the pride, at least I do. Maybe you can join me in this humble confession, that we were the ones who chose him. We were the ones who walked the aisle. We were the ones who decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I mean, this is the kind of thing we we love to think that we are the ones who initiated this. But the scriptures seem to say, with clarity here, God is the one who's initiating this rescue plan. God is the one in this unending paradox that is the gospel that when we were dead in sins, Jesus would take on our sins and death so that we could become alive. I mentioned the Luzon Covenant. This is what international evangelicals declared in the 1970s. Jesus Christ, being himself the only God-man who gave himself as the only ransom for sinners, is the only mediator between God and people. There is no other name by which we must be saved. All men and women are perishing because of sin but God loves everyone not wishing that any should perish but that all should repent he made us alive together this concept of we all all of us sharing in a mutual need for Christ but then in the mutual mercy and God all uh, mercy and grace of God all followers of Jesus share the same experience of being helpless but for this grace This is what Paul's hoping for. He's hoping to push us to a clearer understanding of both mercy and grace. These two things are echoed in Scripture in Psalm 103, 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love these verses. They speak of grace and mercy, but what is often missed when they are taken out of context is they speak of a grace and a mercy that is both amazing and undeserved. See, when kids get spoiled, they think they deserve whatever their parents are giving them. And that's a dangerous place for a kid to be. You never want your child to leave your home thinking that they're owed something. They should be grateful. Many times, though, we are guilty of thinking God owes us something fierce. See, these passages make sense when grace is undeserved, when mercy is something that needs to be pled for. Then it is amazing. When it's deserved, it's like, yeah, 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 I got Gracie. Sure, he's going to be gracious as me. I mean, that's really sometimes, sadly, the attitude of our hearts. I also think that there is an unending need to distinguish between mercy and grace because in the Bible, you'll recognize that they are always separate terms. And yet, sometimes in our mind, they get kind of pulled together. I would like to distinguish, if I could, between mercy and grace by Uh, making a confession to you that I generally am guilty of exceeding the speed limit. Um, I'm a kind of a busy guy, and I think somehow or another on my treks through Los Angeles's highways and byways that I have some justified reason to go faster than the posted speed limit. And in in years past, when I didn't uh, yield to God on that subject, He allowed me to be disciplined by uh, letting me experience John Law's pain, and that means that I would be pulled over and given a citation. Um, now, parking tickets—I don't even know that those are sins, so let's not talk about those today. Uh, that's that's beside the point. In Los Angeles—that's that's just right—a passage. But it, and and with regards to speeding, when I would get pulled over and be ticketed, I, it was just—it was deserved. And so there were times where I would be like, I can't believe he didn't let me off, as if I deserved to be let off of the ticket that I violated. Now, mercy would have been this police officer coming up to me and saying, yes, you didn't know how fast you were going. Okay, just slow down, would you, young man? And so for any number of reasons, they would have been merciful to me. I would not have gotten what I deserved. Now, grace is different than that. The grace would have been if the police officer came up to my window and said, okay, I'm not going to give you the ticket you deserve, but I'm also going to pay off your car loan. Can you give me the coupon, please? (laughs) See, that's getting what we don't deserve. See, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, and that's the gospel. We're not just not getting punished, we're getting credited with the righteousness of Christ. We're blessed in ways that make no sense when we know ourselves. We go like, why is this happening? Lately, my wife and I have just kind of spent like, you know, I know how nuts I am so I, I, and broken I am. I, I'm looking at my life and I'm going, this is a fairly charmed life. I'm really fortunate. I know my own heart. I know my own propensity to wander The grace of God is greater than all our sin, another song we sing. And this is the beauty of the gospel. We have a merciful and gracious God. That's what we share. We share a broken nature, sure, but we share a merciful God, and finally we share a motive and a mission. Verses 8 through 10 are super familiar to most Christians. I read them slowly so that we don't race over them because we've heard them a lot for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them this verse, for me, has been central. It was the first Bible verse I memorized as a college freshman uh, working with some friends who were in the Navigators, and we'd go through this pack of Bible verses. And you, the first verse you learn is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. What I found encouraging in years past is verse 10, because what it does for me is it, it rightly places works on the continuum of our salvation. Growing up in church, many of us felt like We had to earn God's salvation. We had to do good works in order to get the final result of salvation. What this verse clearly states is that we are God's workmanship. We've been saved by grace through our faith and trust in Christ. And this has necessarily produced a work of goodness. So if one doesn't have any works, James would say a faith without works is dead. It's just a non-existent, sort of non-real faith. What Paul is saying is, this grace has been extended to you. You've received it by faith. You are rescued. You need not fear. But you have been rescued to something. Because in advance of your salvation, God has prepared these works for you to do. Now, the reason it's so important to have the motive and the mission in clear sequence is, we can get it all twisted around as to why we are serving God. And the object that God has in all of this is that you and I would actually love him more and enjoy and know him more and glorify him more, not just that we would be good completely apart from knowing and experiencing him. He wants us to love him and Let me see if I can get your attention on this. We cannot love God or others selflessly until we stop thinking in terms of getting something from them. This is what is the heart and at the heart of a works-oriented salvation. I'm doing this because I don't want to go to hell. Well, then you're basically doing this for yourself. I cannot, for instance, attribute in my home my act of cleaning the house as one of love for Carolyn, if I expect or demand an action in response from her. I've cleaned the house today. Now, can I go buy that 72-inch plasma I've had my eye on? No. You owe me. Don't you see what I've done? Clean dishes, vacuumed floor. I loved you. No, I didn't. No. I was doing a good work to manipulate her. And unfortunately, this is where many of us have wasted years of our lives trying to manipulate a God that we don't need to manipulate. He's saying, why? I've satisfied my wrath, whatever wrath was supposed to be poured out on my children. Jesus took that one for the team. And I have credited to you by my grace Christ's righteousness so you don't have to earn my love by being good. So now we actually get to love God. We couldn't love God and do the works he's called us to unless he settled the matter of our salvation. We obey God, we serve God, we love each other and love our community because we have been loved by him. We revere him and fear him and keep his commands because he has already saved us. This distinction is critical to the life of this church because you cannot love someone if you're using them to get what you want. In Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, in light of this grace, the, the smartest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon would say, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. In John fourteen we're also told by Jesus, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him but again this obedience comes as we love him and as it is told all over the new testament we will not love him until we get a clear picture of who he is how holy he is how gracious he is how undeserving we are of that mercy and grace and in response to that want to love him and others like he's loved us that's the command of jesus My sister sent me this picture this morning. (laughs) I just had to show it to you guys. I know it was a last-minute ad. Thank you, Daniel, for your help. Um, This is a picture of her backyard in Washington, D.C. She has seven-foot drifts of snow pushing up against her home. It's a beautiful uh, picture, and it reminded me of something. Uh, When I was a high school youth pastor, we used to take people to West Virginia for skiing, Now, I didn't do that to recruit people to go to my alma mater, although many have accused me of such. It's because the the skiing in West Virginia is cheap comparatively, and it was close enough to Florida where we could drive from Tallahassee in 20 hours and and get on with the rest of our time. Now, one of the things that would happen is as we'd pull into West Virginia, the students would see how poor most of West Virginia is. It is the poorest of the 50 states in America, and you'd see... Old shanty towns, old mining towns, just grubby and dirty. And and you think, and they would say, who would live here? Why in the world did you go to college here? And it was all these kind of references. And we go up to the mountain because you have to go through these mining towns to get to the biggest peaks where these ski resorts were. And then one year while we were around the ski resort for the week, the snow hit the entire state as it did this past week and covered everything in three feet of snow. And we barely got out of the state, but as we drove back, everything that was once before dirty was now beautiful. It looked just like this. And it was such an apt picture, and as what we had been talking about all week at the camp, which is that Jesus has promised us that he will, by his righteousness and his grace, cover over our sin. This is the picture of what we look like before God because of what Christ has done. It was the prophet Isaiah that said, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And this is the gospel. Jesus has made us okay with the Father. As we grasp the reality of just how white as snow we are before his sight, that's what makes us say, you're amazing. God's amazing. That's what makes us say, I need to love you because he's loved me far more than I deserve. It's what makes us serve a community and give our lives away. It's because Jesus gave his life away. He gave his life to give us life. We're called to do the same. Some of you have been living a long time without any real refreshing view of the gospel in your life. And that, if you've ever wondered why you're not having any desire to love God, that's one of two possibilities. One is that you just haven't been around people enough to have them remind you of how fortunate you are, of how gracious God is. You, you haven't, for any number of reasons, been around others and the church and things that would serve to stir your affections for God. And so perhaps in response to a gospel message, you'd want to do that. But there's another class of folks, and maybe you fall into this category, and, and I want you to not quickly push back against this, but it is possible that you've never genuinely become a Christian, and that's not a bad thing today. that's a good thing that you're coming to, those, coming to that conclusion. If your whole life you've been thinking that you had to earn God's favor, then friend, that's not Christianity. The foundation that is common to all faiths, regardless if they're Baptist, Methodists, Presbyterians or non-denominational, the, the faith that they share is the reality that Jesus is what makes you acceptable to the Father. And if you want to finally get to a place where you rest in that, then today, as the Scriptures say, can be the day of your salvation, where you finally let go of your effort and allow Jesus' effort to stand in the, in the gap. That is what you need. That is the source of peace That is what is going to give you joy, and that is most certainly what is going to make you want to love God and be willing to confess when you blow it and be willing to say you're wrong when others in a church say, you hurt my feelings, or you're willing to admit all of the realities that might be described of our human nature because you and I are both now at peace with the reality that we're holier in God's sight than we can fathom. I mean, he really sees you as pure as snow. It's because Jesus is so magnificent. Let's pray to that end that today as we worship in conclusion today, we would really give him our heart in that. Our Father, today we're thankful. Once again, we'd hope that the, the, the truths of your word, the truths of why you sent Jesus to us would penetrate our hearts And help us to love you more. I know your object in all this is that your son would be glorified. That people would see him and honor him as such. And in our good works, you're wishing for that same thing to happen. But we won't love you, Jesus, until we get a really great picture. And so we need your spirit to continue to enable us. This morning as I pray, and every head will still remain or people that pray with their eyes closed we'll keep them closed friend if you're here today and you need to simply return to Christ in a way that you haven't in a really long time then today make this moment where you come to take communion that moment where you reconnect with Jesus and if you're here and you haven't ever laid a clear foundation where you are saying, my life and my walk with God is going to be built on grace and grace alone, the grace and mercy of Jesus. Then today's the day where you say, Jesus, I'm done trying on my own. I'm going to put my trust and faith in you. And the scriptures say, you have been saved by his grace through your act of dependence on him alone. And today, as you come forward and take communion, what you are communicating to everybody in the church is, I'm following Jesus by his grace and his grace alone. And that's really the only contingency we have for communion. You can take communion if you're humble enough to admit you need Jesus and if you have received him as your Savior. doesn't matter what church you came from, what denomination you've been a part of or are a part of. If you know the Savior, you're welcome to the table. Father, would you bless my friends who need to receive you now and give them faith and grace to respond to the gospel and cry out to you and become your children today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.